So last week, I introduced the subject of the church, and basically it's too big a subject to talk about in just one week. Okay, so the most important thing you got from last week um, is that the nature of the church is the people of God and the body of Christ. Now remember both of those because they'll help you understand what we're going to say this week. Especially that second part, the church is the body of Christ. It's not just a club we join. Um, I heard somebody once say that you know the reason the Vatican's gone on for so many years is because people want it to. Um, and they had all the best will in, in, putting, in saying that, but it hasn't gone on because people want it to. It's gone on because God wanted it to. Ultimately, we're saying this is something that's backed by the power of God. Uh, I will say that it's God's instrument. You could say the music that it plays is God's grace and God's message. And that doesn't necessarily mean that people always take it, but it's there, and that's also very important. And as I already mentioned, some people say the church is a necessary evil. That isn't true. It's necessary and it's good. Now, what we're going to talk about here today is some really important subjects when just understanding the church. And you say this every time you gather for Mass and every time you say the Creed. I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. And why and what does that mean? Okay, so that's what I want to talk about here. Because you can't understand, if you understand the church is one holy Catholic and apostolic, and if you understand the church is the body of Christ, and if you understand the church is the people of God, you've got most of what you need to understand the church. It, there will be some follow-up and some explanation and some clarification. In fact, there will be a lot of clarification needed, but you'll have the basic tools, and that's the best I can do for you right here, okay? So, why one holy Catholic and apostolic? Well, we have to talk about a little bit of history first to understand that. Uh, for 300 years in the Roman Empire, the church was illegal. And that meant a lot of real important communication never got done. Uh, I, could, I, could, I could summarize and say that the persecutions of the church were not uniform, and they weren't evenly applied. There are some regions where the church wasn't persecuted at all. Time spans where decades and decades went by and nobody got thrown to the lions. It wasn't like some kind of ongoing, never-ending persecution. It was localized and it was sporadic. But still, it prevented people from, under, from being able to communicate. And there were a lot of false ideas that got spread around. And by the way, the exact same thing happened in Eastern Europe under communism. The church just didn't get a chance to communicate the way it wanted to. And, and there were some, some problems. I don't want to get down the road, but there were some problems as a consequence. So when the church was finally made legal, um, and uh, the year was uh, uh, 315 AD, it was the Edict of Milan, and Constantine made the church legal. Well, finally we could gather worldwide. And how, one of the things was that... was Constantine in that? It's a good uh, question. I've I don't really the, know. Because I know the... Uh, silly movie one. Yeah, I, I, honestly, I don't really know how old Constantine was. But um, one, of the, uh, one, of the things that, one of the things that happened was that we finally got a chance to get together uh, and, to, and to discuss some things that had really become problems, one of which was something called Gnosticism. Now, who's ever heard of Gnosticism? Who's never heard of Gnosticism? Okay. Real briefly, Gnosticism was a, a, another, a different religion. And it actually precedes Christianity. But it passed itself off as Christianity. Um, very, very briefly, Gnosticism was a religion whereby if you maintained a s secret knowledge, it could ele elevate you to a higher status of being. 
and that Jesus came to give us the secret knowledge, and, and this would form, set right? your—that's uh, right. It would set your—it um, would set your spirit free from your body. And anyway, I don't have to go down that path too far to, to help you understand. But people got confused. Well, these Gnostics and many others uh, had been in the church side by side with people who believed the faith, and it came time to try to express what we believe. So the church said, let's describe now what the church really is. And it did it first in a church council. Who's ever heard of a church council? Different times throughout history, the church has gathered together worldwide to meet, and these are called church councils, and they hammer out important questions. What's the most recent church council we've ever had? Vatican II. Who's heard of Vatican II? Everybody, who has never heard of Vatican II? Vatican II is the most recent church council, 1963 to 1965, and I'm not going to get too far afield on this, but very, very briefly, this is what Vatican II talked about. Vatican II said, modern man in the modern world acts and lives as though he doesn't need God. What do we have to say in response to such a claim? And they said, oh, well, we're going we're gonna to talk about the need for every person for God, God's role in the modern world, how it applies in spite of technology, and that was Vatican II, in, in, a, in a very small nutshell. But there have been many church councils. The very first one was Nicaea. And in Nicaea, they, among the questions they raised were, how can you tell what the real church is? And this is what they concluded. They said, you can identify the church by four marks. It's one, it's holy, it's Catholic, and it's apostolic. Okay. Uh, why those four marks? How did they come up with those four things? They came up with those four things because Christ is those four things. And remember, the church is the body of Christ. Uh, Christ is one, Christ is holy, Christ is universal, and he establishes church on the apostles. Okay. So they said, the church has to be these four things. We can weed out who's really in the church, who's really not in the church, by these four things. Now, let's take a look at what these four, four marks are. First of all, they're visible. You shouldn't need an education to be able to see them. You do have to understand somewhat what we mean by them, which is what this class is all about. But it's anybody who takes a serious uh, look at it um, should be able to recognize that these marks are there. Okay? Um, you might not see why we place such importance on them, but you should honestly be able to say the church actually does show these marks. They are outward signs of interior realities, visible signs of invisible realities, okay? Those are the four marks. Now, here's something really important. Um, how much these signs are visible can vary. People can respond to them well, or they can respond to them badly. Um, but no matter what, if you look, you'll see the church always shows them. They'll always be there, because that's the way Christ made the church. Okay, so four marks. First up, the church is one. What does it mean the church is one? Well, first thing you've got to try to tackle in answering that question is, with all these different denominations, how can you say that the church is one? I remember when I was a little boy, <clears throat> we had to drive by four or five Protestant churches to get to a Catholic church. <clears throat> and I asked my mother, um, why don't we just go to one of these churches? And she said, be closer. And, and she said, that's not the real church. And we had a priest over for dinner once, and he said, there's only one church. And I, I thought he was speaking figuratively. But what we mean when we say the church is one is, is, is they're actually speaking literally. You just have to understand what we mean. We're one in belief. We're one in worship. 
and we're one in governance. A critical mind might ask, how'd you come up with those three things? Why not three other things? Why not two? Why not four? Why not five? Why'd you come up with those three things? The reason why we come up with those three things, it goes back to this idea that church is the body of Christ, okay? Now, when you go back to the Old Testament, <clears throat> it said that when the Messiah came, he'd be three things. He'd be a priest, he'd be a prophet, and he'd be a king. So Christ shows forth those three qualities. Allow me just to very briefly explain. Uh, a priest offers sacrifice. A prophet proclaims a message. And a king ultimately is at the service of the people when the idea isn't misused. So the church is one in governance, it's one in belief, and it's one in worship. Those are the three things we mean when we say the church is one. Okay, so let's take a quick look at each one of those. Oh, before I get to that, what I've got here in your notes. Oneness does not mean an abstract unity. Sometimes you'll talk to a, uh, like a Protestant who has some understanding of the Council of Nicaea. And you'll ask them, how can you say that you know, the, the church is one, like the creed in Nicaea told us to say, when you have all these different denominations and branches? And they'll say, well, the church is one mysteriously, and we'll see it in heaven. Well, that's not what we believe. We believe it's actually visibly one and right now. Okay. Um, also, oneness doesn't mean uniformity. Now, this is very important. Here's where I gave you your handouts. Take a look at these handouts real quick. Okay. Oneness does not mean uniformity. The church is actually very, very diverse. Um, and I've got here different rites. There's different ways you can go to Mass different rites in our history. Most Catholics are Latin rite, Roman rite, by far. Far, far, far and away. But there's other rites out there. Uh, when I was, I think I mentioned to you, I tried to become a monk and I flunked. Okay. The order I joined was the Carthusian order, and they've got their own way of saying Mass. And nobody's ever seen it unless you go into a Carthusian monastery to see it. And the only way to get in is you got to be a monk. So I'm one of the few people in the world who's ever seen the Carthusian rite. Um, it's said in silence. The priest says the prayers to himself with his arms extended. Um, when it comes time for the sign of peace, you give somebody a hug, and then you turn to the guy next to you, and you give that guy a hug, and you pass it down the line. <laughs> it takes two hours. Um, uh, and on and on and on. But it's different. Okay, It's different. Um, but there are all these different rites. Are they under the Roman rite? Those are all those are all Latin rite. Okay. Then there's okay, they're under the no they're they're their own rite. Uh, then there's the Eastern rites, as you see, and it's very very complicated. Look at the look at your page on the back side, and you've got uh, the Latin rite and all these other rites. They're all Eastern rites, um, but but you can go to uh, say a, a Maronite. Catholic Church and pull into their parking lot and go to their liturgy and it counts for your Sunday obligation. In fact, I suggest you do. It's very interesting. One of my favorites is um, uh, just don't want to get too far afield here, but I went to the Ukrainian rite and before communion they chant, holy things for the holy, holy things for the holy as if to say, if you've got sins, stay in your pew. <laughs> you, um, and then when, before they chant the gospel, they say, wisdom, let us be attentive. In other words, stop daydreaming, pay attention. <laughs> but it's neat. 
just, it was different. So we're not uniform. Okay, you, that's just for your FYI. Throw that in there just for your edification. So, we're not uniform. So how many of these guys? Because I know that uh, the Byzantine Rite crosses themselves backward from the Latin Rite. I think all the Eastern Rites do so, that. So all the Eastern yeah. Rites. I think all the Eastern Rites cross so themselves. The cops, do they do it that way? The Amer- I didn't. Uh, that, that's actually a good Rites question. I, 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 I'm not. I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure how many of them. How many of them do it that Something way? Something to YouTube. That's true. Um, okay, so uh, one, another interesting thing about the lack of uniformity in the church uh, is the saints. They're so unique. Each one truly became who they are. Okay, so you, you, oneness does not mean uniformity. But here's what oneness does mean. It means three things. It means one in belief, one in worship, and one in governance. Let's take a quick look at each one of those three things. Okay, first of all, one in belief. It doesn't matter whether you're Antiochene, Chaldean, Byzantine, Alexandrian, or any of these other rites, we profess the same faith. They might have different emphases in it. They might use different words. Um, by the way, just you, you've heard of Eastern rites, haven't you? Yes. Anybody not heard of Eastern rites? You can go to an Eastern rite and they'll talk about the Dormition of the Blessed Mother. And they mean the exact same thing we mean when we talk about the Assumption of the Blessed Mother into Heaven. They just use different words. Different traditions, okay? But we profess the same faith. When it comes to faith, when it comes to, from, to morality, down through the apostles, down through the centuries, it's the same faith, okay? One in worship. We have seven sacraments. Nobody has eight. Nobody has six. Um, and this is an important point. I'm getting ahead of myself because we'll talk about sacraments later. But we believe that sacraments come from Christ, not from the church, I was at a conference once, a panel of seven different religious leaders, and I was representing the Catholics in this conference. And there was uh, Baptists and every other, lots of denominations. And they had different, uh, different numbers of sacraments. Some of them said there were two. Some, I didn't know how they came up with any other number than seven. But we believe they came from Christ. Christ himself instituted them, and we all celebrate them, Okay. Now, here's a very important point, and a very important point to understand as clearly as you can. One in governance. The church has the authority to um, make disciplines. It's not the same thing as teachings. I had a huge discussion with one of our people last year on this subject. The church has the authority to make disciplines for the well-being of people. And these disciplines are not the same thing as teachings, and they can change them. Here's an example of a discipline that's currently in force. You're not supposed to receive communion unless you've had one hour of fasting from uh, food and drink before receiving communion, which basically means don't snack on the way to church. It's, but it used to be three hours. Before that, it was fasting from midnight. And we can change back to those things if we want to. Uh, here's another discipline, holy days of obligation. November 1st is a holy day of obligation. December 8th is a holy day of obligation. We can change that if we want to. We can add a day, we can take away a day. It's a discipline. Okay, but here's what we believe. And this is important to understand. The church has the authority to make those disciplines. And when they make those disciplines, we're bound uh, as good Christians to follow them because they exist for the well-being of everybody. Um, Rules regarding the marriage ceremony. Back in the day, it used to be that the church once said that anybody who got married outside of a bishop, priest, or a deacon celebrating was not validly married. Now we say that as long as somebody approaches the bishop and asks for permission, you can actually be validly married 
If you're a Protestant marrying a Catholic, you can actually validly be married by a Protestant minister in a Protestant church, and it counts as a wedding in the Catholic church. As long as you've gotten... Actually, I'm going to have to ask you to hold it. I'll never get through to the end. I'll never get through to the end. As long as 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 they've gotten permission from the bishop. And actually, it's a discipline. They could change it back if they wanted to. But here's the important thing to understand. Hopefully nobody gets bent out of shape about this. The authority to make those disciplines is something that we believe the church has. And that when those disciplines are made, we respect them and honor them. Kind of the same as, I don't know, I guess I imagine in the... Well, what, the school has the authority to say, this is the hour when school begins. Uh, And you better show up at that time or you're going to get in trouble. They could change it if they wanted to, but you're respecting the authority that the school system has. Okay. Um, That's what we mean by oneness. Okay. Some people will say, what about Protestant churches? Are they in the one church? And here's the short answer to that. We say that the church that Christ founded subsists in its fullness in the Catholic Church. And that's a step removed from saying that anybody who's not in the Catholic Church is not in the Church. Basically what we say is, the more you're in line with what the Church celebrates and believes and the authority the Church has, the more you're in the Church. Such that if you're in the Catholic Church, you're fully in. What we're saying is other denominations, they're, they're, they're more or less in. Some more, some less. But one in belief, one in governance, uh, and one in worship. Those are the three things in which we say, and it's oneness all across the board. Make sense? The Anglicans are closer now. Is that was that changed? Um, well, now to talk about the Anglicans, Anglican, yeah, to talk about that, I, I, I'd actually have to get. A, I'm afraid I'm going to run out of time yeah, if, right. I, if I feel all these yeah, questions. Gonna, we'll save them to the end, okay? Save them all the end. All right. Um, secondly, second mark: the church is holy. Now, this one's very hard to understand. In fact, I'm going to jump ahead to an analogy that I hope explains it. And it's the analogy of water. Water is a good image to understand why the church is holy. Water is wet, whether anyone ventures out into the rain or not. If people venture out into the rain, water doesn't become more wet. If people stay inside, water doesn't become less wet. Water is water, and water is wet. Okay. Now, the church is holy because Christ is his body is the church. The church is the cause of the holiness of its members. But the holiness of the church is due to the fact that it's the body of Christ. It's not due to people's response. Now this is very important. Very, very bold statement here. The holiness of the church is not the sum total of the holiness of her members. If everyone in church was in mortal sin, the church itself would not be less holy. Now you have to understand my analogy of water to get that. If everybody in the world were standing on the side of the beach, water would not be less wet. The people would be less wet, but water would not be. Okay? If everybody in the world dove in, and if everybody in the world is a saint, the church is not more holy. The holiness of the church can't get more, and the holiness of the church can't get less. The holiness of the church is the holiness of Christ. So basically what we're saying when we say the church is holy is that there's this there's this opportunity that everybody has to dive in. And the more they dive in, the holier they get. But what's there, what's offered, doesn't grow because everyone dives in and doesn't diminish if they don't. So if I go and I say to you, thou shalt not commit adultery, that doesn't become less true if everybody in the world commits adultery. 
It doesn't become more true if everybody in the world uh, observes it, right? If I say to you, uh, love your enemy, that doesn't become better if everyone loves their enemy. It doesn't become worse if everyone loves their, if everyone doesn't love it. It remains what it is. So that's what we're saying when we say the church is holy. It's got like all this stuff on offer and it's really, really good. And it'd be great if everyone took it, but it doesn't become worse if people don't. It doesn't become better if people do. Make sense? That's what we mean when we say the church is holy. And only then can we, can we proceed, because then everyone wants to know, you know, like, what about the, the, the bad members? We'll get to that in just a second, okay? But there's three ways in which the, the holiness of the church is outwardly visible following the example that I gave. It's teaching, it's activity, and it's members. Now, let's talk about the teaching of the church first. I think the best way to understand the teaching of the church is from a quip by G.K. Chesterton who said, the church's teaching has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and therefore left untried. I really think that's thoroughly true. Um, You can talk about um, almost any belief in the church in that way, but if you have to stop and look at it, you have to admit that that, that that it's greatly good, okay? Um... And that we've never, this is the most amazing thing, you can't take one corporation in the world over a span of so much as 10 years and say that, you know, they've never gone and reverse course and backtracked and changed their policies. And The church hasn't backtracked? The church has not backtracked on any matter of faith or morality. Faith or morality. That's right. What about Spanish Inquisition? Um, Or the Inquisition period? um, Again, you're going to have to hold your questions today because I'm going to get too far afield, okay? Uh, but again, that's that would be the behavior of members, not the teaching of what we believe. Again, it's important to define our terms, right? Um, but uh, but in terms of what we believe, we've always professed the same faith. We never come up and said, "Well, you know, there's actually nine commandments. We're taking one of them back." Yeah, you know, um, Jesus, he really wasn't God. We're going to reverse course on that. Faith and morality. Uh, there's been tremendous pressure. There's been tremendous worldly power. Um, there's been tremendous weaknesses and vices and sins, but we never changed our teaching to allow for personal sinfulness. Okay? So the church's teaching and all the you know faithfulness to your spouse, all these things, not easy, but very good. Right? It's activity. It's activity, um, especially in, in what it celebrates and what it and what it's and what it celebrates is the sacraments. I have to kind of get a jump ahead and to explain what the sacraments are, right? Um, the sacraments are signs of grace that actually give grace. Like if you have a little baby baptized, real grace from God is given. We'll get to grace later in a future lecture, but just understand it as the strength of God for now, okay? Um, and the more you're disposed to receive it, the more good it does you. The power is there waiting for you to take it, and some people take it deeply, and some people take it shallowly. But, that baptism offers this, that confirmation offers this, people might not necessarily believe what the church believes here, but it should be apparent to all, this is something we take very seriously. What do we do here at this church? We proclaim the word. That's what we do. And, we give people the grace of God that they need to live by it. That's what we do. Some people will say, well, why isn't it a soup kitchen? Well, we actually do operate a lot of charities, but primarily what we do is proclaim the word and give people the grace of God to live by it. 
and many, many other things as well, but that's most of what we do. So the activity that the church offers, um, giving married couples the grace of Christ to be faithful, uh, forgiving sins and strengthening people to, to honor their father and mother and love their neighbor and giving them strength and suffering. We'll get to all these things when we explain the sacraments. That's what we mean when they say the activity of the church is holy. Now, this one is highly controversial, but the members of the church... What I want to suggest is the only people that are fully and totally wet in the water are the ones who have really dived in are the saints. Those are the ones that are fully, fully in the church. And I think the saints are the ace in the hole for the truth of the church. Ultimately, when people ask me, how do you know this Catholic stuff is true? I will describe to them the lives of saints. Let me give you just a couple of brief examples. Um, St. Vincent de Paul. St. Vincent de Paul is probably the founder of modern social work. He was a formerly wealthy man who hobnobbed in the Palace of Versailles with French nobles. Um, he was captured and taken prisoner and enslaved in North Africa. Learned the folly of all this falderall and nobility and all this stuff. Decided to spend the rest of his life serving the poor. Used all those connections that he'd made in Versailles to help fund it. But one day he's begging for money on the streets of Paris and a man came up and slapped him in the face with his hand. You're an inflamed boil on the buttocks of this city, he said. Now what does the gospel tell us to do when you're struck on one cheek? Anybody know the answer? Turn it off from the other. And he did, literally, without missing a beat. Now if somebody slapped you in the face, do you think you'd turn the other cheek? You probably wouldn't. He did, no, without missing a beat. Turn the other cheek. I'll take that for me, he said, sticking out his hand once again. Now give me something for the poor. How do you, that's great, great goodness. Imagine if half the people on Capitol Hill had goodness like that. We'd be in a lot better shape, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Vincent de Paul, um, another one, um, uh, Maximilian Kolbe, who I think I told you about last time. Did I tell you about him last time? Yep. Maximilian Kolbe? Mm -hmm. I thought I did. The guy who gave his Vincent life DePaul. away, right? I told you about Vincent de Paul. Yeah, it, it, okay. same story. You're fine. Okay, that's good. Um, so, it's a good story. I forget how many times I forget how many times I've told my stories. But there's there's many many. Here's another story. I'm sure I haven't told you. Uh, Max. Um, uh, Romero. I like him. What's that? The newest Romero. Oh, Oscar Romero. I, 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 don't have a, I don't have a story of him on the tip of my tongue, but here's one I do have. Um, St. John Vianney. Okay. St. John Vianney saw a man in the streets who didn't have any shoes. He took his own shoes off his feet, gave the shoes to the man without shoes, and he himself went barefoot. Just without thinking twice. So these are the people who really, really live it. And what we say is, these are the people who didn't make excuses, they didn't cut exceptions, they were the very cream of humanity. They exemplified every human goodness. They're the ones that make it evident that what they believe is true. That's what we mean when we say the members are holy. Okay? And I've said this before as well, you don't judge a medicine by those who don't, by those who don't take it, you judge it by those who do. Okay? What about the bad members? What about the scallywags? What about the sinners? A couple of things I can say about that. Number one, they kind of in a backhanded way are evidence of the goodness of the faith because what people condemn about them is the fact that they're not living it. As if to say, if you were just more like what you professed, this world would be a better place, thereby indirectly saying that what they profess is pretty good. Okay. Um, another thing is that our Lord himself told us, and in many parables, he said that, 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 that we're going to, right until the end of time, there were going to be weeds mixed in with the wheat until the harvest time. 
this side of death, there's always going to be people in the church standing side by side with, with saints who are real scallywags and they have their purpose to serve. Okay? But when we talk about the holiness of the church being the members, that's what we mean. Okay? That's what we mean when we talk about the church being holy. And that is a hard one to understand, but I hope that kind of makes sense. Okay, here's the third one. The third mark is the church is Catholic. Catholic is actually a vocabulary word. And it means universal. It comes from two Greek words, kata, holos. Kata means out of, holos means whole. It means the whole world, right? Uh, And here's what we mean when we say the church is universal. It has everything you need. It's got every teaching you need. It's got every grace you need. There's nothing that you need to get to heaven that we're not offering, right? Um, Sometimes people will say, you know, I left the church and I discovered Jesus without realizing that, you know, he was here all along. He really, really was. And there was really nothing missing, even if it wasn't recognized. The Catholic Church is Catholic, is, is Catholic because of its mission. Its mission is sent out to the entire world. There are full-time Catholic parishes in Antarctica, believe it or not, because uh, there's permanent Antarctic missions of uh, competing interests of Chile and Argentina, and they've got a church. There's somebody down there saying Mass, and it's, it's, it's a little Catholic church in, in Antarctica. Uh, interestingly enough, um, they've actually figured out who would be bishop of the moon if we sent a moon colony to the moon. Just to satisfy your curiosity, the bishop of the moon would be the bishop of Cape Canaveral because <laughs> that's where they launched from. <laughs> and that, so they've already, but they've already figured it out as if to say if we sent people to the moon, we'd send priests to the moon. In case but it encompasses every time, every culture, and every in a universal effort. I've, I've said Mass in Rwanda. I've said Mass in Zambia. I've said Mass in Haiti. Um, I've said Mass where, right up with the bread and wine that they offer at the offertory, they brought live chickens and bananas. I mean, it's, it's just, we don't do that here, but they do that there. So believe me, we're, um, it's a universal effort, right? Um, um, and 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 and, there, and and that there's a universal effort to draw all peoples all peoples in into the structure of the church, and that the wholeness of what we profess uh, is there in the church, governed by the, 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 the pope and the bishops. This is what we mean when we say that the church is universal. Okay, um, and as I mentioned before, uh, um, there is kind of like a partial membership that we would say would be would, would describe people that would be in, in Protestant denominations. And I can flesh that out more in just a minute as soon as I get through this. Okay, the fourth one is the church is apostolic. And this is very important to understand. You want to understand one thing that's about God. He delegates. He's not a micromanager. You got your life from parents, and yet you can truthfully say you got your life from God. Um... You learned about God through some human instrumentation along the way, or you wouldn't be here. And yet God himself was also the author of that message. God delegates. He exalts his subordinates. And he did this in an astonishing way when he founded the church. He picked these 12 apostles. And what a ragtag bunch they were. They argued with each other. They wanted to know who was the most important um, one, was it there were, one of them betrayed, and it's a very important role that Judas played, actually, just going to show that even the ones that Jesus picked 
by hand Without would display him, every kind of human fault. Um, and you might know about Simon, the Zealot Party member. How about Peter's denial? Where would that play in Jesus? He said, he, you deny me before and, the cock crows. And, uh, and, 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 and the Gospel of John, there are three times when he reversed that denial. But yeah, allow me just to, we'll try, we'll try to pool up questions at the end if we can, okay? Um, but he founded his church on the apostles and he ascended into heaven. And he promised to send them the Holy Spirit to guide them and that's why we say the church is ultimately the, you know, the, 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 work, the work of God but you know, he, he had no backup plan he really did found this church on the apostles and the, what the, that's why the apostles become such an authority and, and as I said before if you want to understand what the church believes ask yourself this question what if Christians believe from the beginning because it wasn't handed down from the apostles I'm not interested in it I want to know the faith that he passed on to the apostles so um, he said to his apostles, as the Father sends me, so I send you. Um, and, he, and he sent them out. And they can't pass on being apostles, because I think I mentioned before, an apostle is one personally chosen by Jesus, who's a witness to the resurrection. But, he did, but they did hand on the task that they had, that of proclaiming the gospel and celebrating the sacraments and making it present. And we say that's what a bishop is, a successor to the apostles. Peter was set up as head of the whole band of apostles, and we say that authority got handed on, and this is very important to understand as well. That if there's not one who is head of all of the bishops, um, then there's no way to settle disputes that arise, and basically we believe that that authority exists. Did I say this before? Tell me about my friend who witnessed the argument in the Wednesday night Bible study in the church. No, when you were when you attended Protestant Bible study. No, this was a this was there was a Protestant Bible study where one guy he said I like that I don't like that I think I mentioned that but a friend of mine he was at a Presbyterian Bible study and he saw this dispute arise and it got really heated and one guy stood up in his chair pointed down to the other guy sitting in his chair and he said I rebuke you. And the other guy said, no, I rebuke you. And he said, well, what's needed here is an unrebuked rebuker. What's needed here is somebody who actually has the authority. Why am I a Catholic and not an Eastern Orthodox? Because I believe God gave us that authority. And I believe he gave us that authority in the person of St. Peter. Oh, and that, that authority, magisterium. yeah, magisterium. And I believe that authority is something that's been passed down. And that's something the church believes, okay? Since the Pope, since um, the Pope has the authority of Peter over the church, to lead them to settle, settle disputes. We say the Pope has a, a, a character, a charism of infallibility. Now let's let's build up. Let, let's explain what that means. Okay. First thing we begin to explain that is that if we don't believe that the Church has a protection against error in faith and morality, then why are we bothering? Your guess is as good as mine. Um, and you know how that ends up. If, when it comes to faith and morality, if your guess is as good as mine, what ends up prevailing? Whatever's easiest, right? Not necessarily what's true. So what we're going to say here is we're going to say that God, by a promise to the Holy Spirit, as the Father sent me, I sent you, and I promised the Holy Spirit, he, pre he protected his church against error. That's a real foundational Catholic idea. God's infallible, the Holy Spirit and Christ are with the church until the end of time, and that's why we say the church is infallible. It's not 
always going to teach something, but when it teaches something about faith or morality, it might not be all there is to say on the matter either, but we could say it's not going to be wrong. That's all we're saying. Okay? And basically, because the Pope's the last word, the Pope, when he teaches on these things, has the charism of infallibility as well. Now again, the Pope very often doesn't say anything. That's his most common card that he plays. But occasionally, to settle disputes, he stepped up and said things. What year did they Infallibility. define that? That was Eight defined years. in the first Vatican Council. But what we're going to say is it wasn't defined until it was first criticized or called into question. So we're going to say that was a development, but not an innovation. That the Church has always had that authority. The Pope has always had that authority. But... But so one one time in which it was exercised was 1854. Was the 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 Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary? Does that mean we started believing in it in 1854? No, that's when it was first called into question. Uh, um, Another time was the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, 1950. You're not gonna like one of my questions on that. We'll we'll, we'll get to it. (laughs) I know. Um, um, But uh, but. um, but that but the, but the, but the, but the Pope has this charism. That's all we're saying is that it exists. Now, I've got something here for you at the end of your notes that you might find interesting. It's an extended discussion of the passage from the Bible by which Jesus gives the authority to St. Peter over the church. And that passage is Matthew 16, uh, 18. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Um, and... Uh, and what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I have a kind of an extended little, it's just an interesting little study. You can take a look at it in greater detail. But what Jesus says to Peter when he establishes, and have you ever heard that passage before? Matthew 16, 18. And that's why people say when you go up to the pearly gates, who's standing at the pearly gates? St. Peter, right? Why St. Peter? Because Jesus handed him the keys. Well, where did that come from? It actually comes from a passage in the book of the prophet Isaiah. In the days of King Hezekiah, there was a prime minister. And Elijah is speaking a message of God against him. He's going to be removed, and somebody named Eliakim is going to be put in his place. And he says, Eliakim will be father over the household. What does the word pope mean? Papa? Father. right? Over the household. And I will place on his shoulder the keys of the kingdom of the house of David. And what he opens, none shall shut, and what he shuts, none shall open. And what did Jesus say to Peter? I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Now, the background of that little passage is this whole idea of being placed over the household, as I said. Well, we place them over the household. The term is al-bayit. It was actually an office in ancient Israel, and this was the guy who governed the kingdom of Israel whenever the king was away. He had the authority to act as a prime minister. Effectively, that's what we're saying the pope is. He's not the king, but he acts in the name of the king until the king comes back. That's who we're saying the Pope is. Okay? Now, I've got this whole thing all played out. That's who Moses was in the name of God. That's who Joseph was in the, in the name of the house of Israel. There's this passage from the second book of Kings in which uh, King Azariah gets leprosy and he's exiled and his son steps in and he becomes the Albayit. He becomes the prime minister and he rules in the king's place. But the direct parallel between what Jesus says to Peter is from the book of the prophet Isaiah, and it references this very idea. You're the one who's going to rule until I come back again. That's kind of like a scriptural foundation as to 
what we believe the Pope is. Okay, so what we've got, what we've got here is I've kind of gone over one Holy Catholic and Apostolic with a little bit of detail, um, and now, now you're free to ask all the questions that you want to ask. So okay, Jesus would be familiar with that tradition completely, of course, thoroughly, of course. Even every Jew, as being a allow Jew. me to, yeah, allow me to just tell you one thing. Um, when um, Saint Jerome went to Israel. He wanted to, in the 4th century, he wanted to learn the original texts of the scriptures in their original language. He already knew Greek. He wanted to learn Hebrew. He lived in Bethlehem for like 15 years. And he said, even then, he hardly ever came across a child over the age of 10 who did not have huge passages of scripture committed to memory. Jesus would have been like any other kid his age. Whereas... Mostly Arabic, uh, well, now we're talking fourth century. Oh, okay. this is, this, the, before, there was no Islam before they existed. <laughs> before they existed, yeah, sorry. Um, ba- back in the day, same people. Uh, back back in the day, Jesus. Uh, if you, if real briefly, if you wanted to become, if you wanted, to, if you could go back in time and see how kids acted in Jesus' time, their number one aspiration would be someday to be a great rabbi. Now, to become a great rabbi, you had to be asked personally by a great rabbi to become one of their disciples. Uh, before you were asked by a great rabbi, if you become one of the disciples, you had to demonstrate your mastery of the scriptures. That's one of the things that's actually going on. You know that when Bar Jesus mitzvah, is... Uh, uh, well, that's when you become an adult. Yeah. But you know when Jesus is in the temple? You know that passage where Jesus is teaching the elders in the temple? Exactly. And he's absolutely mesmerizing all the rabbis with his depth of his knowledge. He's only 12 years old. So you've got to figure a lot of these, t- a lot of these rabbis are going to ask him, come. To, it was almost like, you know, like 18-year-olds, they all want to get into the best college they can get into. A lot of them do at least. They want to, and they take their tests and they study their exams and they write their applications and they want to get into their college. In Jesus' time, they wanted to study with a great rabbi. And I don't want to get too far, but I just find this kind of interesting. No, what I would happen is you would talk to a rabbi and after he was finished talking to you, he'd tell you one of two things. He would either say, son, come follow me, which is what Jesus said to all the people on the lake shore, right? You want to know where the, why the apostles, and again, it's, it, I find this so interesting. You notice in the apostles, they're working their fishing nets. And Jesus says, come follow me. And they drop their fishing nets right in the middle of the day. And they leave their fishing nets and their business and their father in the boat and they go follow Jesus. But they recognize him as a great rabbi. Because they recognize him as a great rabbi. He just said the magic words. You're in. Here's your letter of admission. They would either say, come follow me, or he would say, son, go ply your father's trade. That was a way of saying thanks, but no thanks. Go work in good carpentry. So Jesus definitely would have known, and even just culturally, would have known all this stuff, as would everybody else. So that's, that's the quick answer to your question. But I think I cut you off. Were you asking? No, I just okay. had a small, um, near the beginning, the four marks of the church. Mm-hmm. You said it was the Nicaea, as in the Nice, like the Nicene. Yes, the truth is that the Nicene Creed was first written at the Council of Ni- first Council of Nicaea. Yeah. It was amended at the uh, Second Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople, and it's properly known as the Niceo-Constantinopolitan Creed. But yeah, <laughs> but they, they ended it. They amended it. They worked on this for centuries to put exactly into words what we believe. How, how do you spell Nicaea? Nicaea, N-I-C-E-A, Nicaea. Yeah. To uh, 